Welcome to the Christian Drummers Podcast, discussing the art of drumming to the glory of Almighty God. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. Howdy, friends. It is, as ever, a glorious time to be a drummer in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. I bet you were wondering where I've been since our last episode was the St. Patrick's Day special. Like you, probably, Holy Week really did a number on me. At my home parish here in Houston, Holy Trinity, we have a service Wednesday through Saturday in Holy Week, then our big Easter service, then our big Easter party, And for that, a bunch of the musicians in the parish get together and form a cover band and play a bunch of songs for the party and that kind of thing. So that week was really crazy. And then um, I've just been working a lot and haven't really been able to sit down and do this. So ironically, I had a topic I wanted to talk about. I was all ready to go and formulating an outline in my mind and all that. And then Prince died. So our first segment is actually going to be what we can learn from the life and work of Prince. And I'm going to try to tie some theology into that to make it make sense. Uh, And then in our uh, practical segment, I want to talk about operating in challenging environments. And what I mean by that is not so much uh, maybe interpersonal issues or gear troubles or anything like that. I want to talk about just the... um, the two different kinds of environments we find ourselves in and some of the challenges that come from them and what you can do to deal with that if you find yourself working in those situations. In our fundamentals section, I want to start talking about the fundamentals of reading and writing charts and learning songs quickly by means of either reading them or writing them, right? So we're going to talk about that, and there's going to be some examples that you can download from johnnydrums.com on the post for this episode. So, let's get started. So, of course, we all know about the untimely passing of Prince and what a loss that is to the pop music community. I was a big fan for a while, and then he kind of slipped off my radar Um, He never lost my respect, of course, but um, I do mourn his passing, especially given that he was apparently a very devout Jehovah's Witness, and um, my fear is that he has found out the hard way that our Lord Jesus Christ is in fact God and is in fact the second person of the Holy Trinity. Um, I pray for God's mercy over him and over his family. Now, Why am I talking about Prince on a Christian broadcast, given that he wasn't one, and that his lifestyle, by all indications, ran contrary to our faith? Um, I'll tell you why. The theological idea behind this is that the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants. We know that our Lord made all things for himself. We know that in Jesus Christ, all things exist for him and hold together in him. And also we know that we have been promised all things in him. 
Well, Prince is one of those things. Um, when unbelievers who live in God's world and operate according to its laws and grasp blindly at the truth, they sometimes find some things. That's because this is God's world, and he's going to mercifully allow them to find some truth, sadly to their condemnation if they don't come to Christ, but also to bring himself glory and for us. One thing believers need to understand, and you can learn this in a book I'm going to recommend, is that the world and everything in it that the Lord has made, he's given to us, and that means we can learn even from those who are his enemies because, again, the world operates according to his will. And so there is truth that unbelievers can stumble upon that we can learn from. Um, Prince learned some things that the Bible will teach us about work and about dedication and about honing one's craft. I suspect he may have been somewhat over the line in the same sense that I talked about when we discussed excellence earlier, about how some musicians are so driven to pursue their instrument that it becomes idolatrous. Um, But still, we can learn from his devotion to his job and his dedication to doing it well. So let's start by talking about Prince's phenomenal output. He was very much, um, to my mind, like Frank Zappa, another unbeliever from whom I personally have learned a lot and taken a lot of inspiration. Because both men were constantly working, constantly. Prince put out 39 studio albums, five soundtrack albums, four live albums, five compilation albums, 17 video albums, and 12 EPs. Okay, that's, that's officially, right? But we've all heard rumors of the vault. He's got a bank vault, apparently, at Paisley Park, filled with thousands of songs. Now, surely some of them are work tapes and demos and things like that, but he finished a lot of music. Indeed, um, one of my favorite albums was uh, Chaos and Disorder. And I remember reading an interview with, uh, I believe it was Michael Bland playing drums at the time, that you know when you worked for Prince, you were on call all the time. And he just got a call at about two in the morning to come to the studio, and they recorded a hard rock album. And I just think that's brilliant. He was always working, always creative, always driven to put out new music. When he performed, he was amazing. He was a master of all of the instruments that he would use in his band, and he could play them all and make them do what he wanted. That means, behind the scenes, he played them a lot. His band and, you know, he and his band were extremely well rehearsed. Everything was tight and solid and ready to be presented and ready to be played with at a moment's notice. And you can see it when you watch the band and when you watch him, when you see the execution, you can see just the enormous amount of energy being poured into what he was doing. And uh, that he had so developed his skills that he could, on a dime, pick up an instrument and be just brilliant. Now, all of this points to quite a work ethic, doesn't it? And it's that that we can learn from him. I believe all things being equal, most of us do not work 
hard enough and don't work according to the patterns that we've been given. I personally always feel convicted that I'm never working enough or working hard enough. I'm quite a procrastinator, and it feels to me like I let a million little things get in the way of the things that I have put before me to do. This episode is late, right? Well, I think we all suffer from that, and I think that is usually the problem among us evangelicals, more so than us being overworked. Indeed, the pattern we've been given is six days shall you labor, and on the seventh you shall rest. But most of us don't do that, and most of us don't work hard all day. But when we do, when we pour ourselves into our vocation, when we pursue the things that God has given us to pursue, things happen at a rather astonishing rate. He multiplies things a lot faster. Um, I remember a great sermon about Nehemiah just saying, this is a testimony to what happens when men work. Again, I don't think we need to turn the pursuit of our instruments into an idolatrous pursuit, but I don't really think that is an issue so much as we kind of let practicing and things like that slide. So the first thing we can learn is we can put our time to more godly use. We can organize it in a more biblical pattern of work and Sabbath and not waste so much time. We can also look at the drive that, that just motivated Prince, the need to create and the need to do it well to always be on, to always perform at the very highest level. And we could pour much more energy into what we do. We can learn from this unbeliever what we as believers should be doing, and we can imitate it, and hopefully someone out there will surpass him, ordering it all to the glory of Almighty God. So let's think about that as we see all the videos and tributes of uh, Prince and his music and his performances, watch the man. Watch what he did. Watch how well he did it. And let's ask if we can pursue our godly pursuits in the same way. For the very reason that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all who dwell within it. Amen. Okay, for our next segment, I wanted to talk about dealing with challenging environments. And again, by that, I don't mean, you know, gear problems or travel or, you know, difficult band members or anything like that. I wanted to talk about the, the kinds of things that you're going to have around you in, for want of a better word, the secular world and than what you're going to deal with in the church world, and especially if you do the kind of things that I do. Um, My situation is such that besides things like teaching drum lessons, I divide my playing between worship bands and secular bands. You know, I'm leading worship at several churches, and 
worship leaders will hire me to come in and do services or sometimes concerts or things like that. And then um, I'm a member of two cover bands. And then I have about another four or five who routinely bring me in as a sub. And obviously I'm (laughs) always available for more work. So if anybody needs a drummer, be sure and hit me up. So I'm always in these different environments and there are challenges involved in both of them. So whether you're playing in churches and special music concerts with that, or whether it's more like clubs and, you know, live music venues, you're going to have different things that you have to deal with. So let's talk about the, um, just what the challenges are first. And I'll start with the secular world because that's the easy one. Um, Very often, of course, we're going to be in an environment where we're playing music in front of unbelievers, and especially in a bar or a honky-tonk, you know, there there is kind of an atmosphere in which drunkenness and sexual immorality are kind of expected, you know. Um, Now, granted, a lot of people just go out to see live music because they want to be entertained, and there's nothing wrong with that, but... We do know that in the club scene, I mean, there's a lot of people who what they're pursuing is to numb their mind and to hook up. So there there are going to be those kinds of pressures around you. There are also going to be just um, worldview assumptions, you know, just the things behind the hedonism, the things behind what they're coming together to do. It's just a contrary worldview, and that's going to play itself out in a lot of different ways, just in conversations and and in uh, what people assume you're there for and things like that. You also have the challenge that um, if you're like me, you play music with people who aren't believers, and so you have their personal beliefs and their personal situations, the way they're living their life, the things that they're pursuing when they're there working, and those can often run contrary to our witness, our faith, and um, God's law, frankly. So those are, again, kind of the low-hanging fruit in terms of what the challenges are. I mean, we all know that, where we live and work among unbelievers, and we know what their struggles and temptations are and what they're going to bring to us in terms of conflict. Now, churches, though, you wouldn't think that there would be a lot of challenges, but there can be give you an example. For me, um, if you listen to this podcast for long, if you know anything about me, you know that I hold some very solid theological positions that I care about very much. And those positions and my concern about reform in the evangelical worship world, you know, um, put me in a pretty small minority both in terms of my theology, in terms of my practice, and in terms of the things that I care about, and in terms of the things that I'm trying to do. So as I travel around to most of the kinds of churches that hire me, I have a conflict with a great deal of things that I may see. There may be theological differences. There may be things that are going on as part of the service that trouble me. There very often is content trouble in some of the music that I'm asked to perform. And so what do you do when that's going on? Well, here's the thing. We're supposed to be gracious, humble, and loving 
wherever we go, whether it's among the unbelievers or whether it's among fellow believers. And actually, I think it's among fellow believers that a lot of people forget that. So the most obvious thing you can do in any situation where you're being challenged is to earn some goodwill. And I mean earn it. Remember that we're being called to be witnesses. When I'm in a bar, I'm a witness of Jesus. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I haven't been called to be those things in my own church. But I am called to be a witness. And here's what I mean by that, because that's going to trouble somebody. Obviously, we are to show the gospel wherever we go in all things that we do. But we're not necessarily called to stop everything and call a room full of two or three hundred people drinking and dancing to come forward and say the sinner's prayer. So I'm not always there to give a sermon. Actually, I'm never there to give a sermon. I am there to live as a witness. So I need to remember what I'm there to do. I'm there to play the drums. We also earn goodwill through honesty. Everybody that I play with knows I'm a Christian, and they know how seriously I take my faith. And I'm just upfront about it. And I'm also going to be very upfront about any conflict I have with anything that I see around me. We also earn goodwill through modeling Christian living. Okay? Um, I drink. Okay? I like to have a beer or a shot of whiskey most nights. And I even will drink while I work, which ironically I was very against before I got right with the Lord. But I'm modeling in front of the unbelievers when I'm in a bar or something like that. I'm modeling the Christian way to enjoy those things. I'll have a beer. I'll have a shot. Maybe I'll have a couple over the course of the night, but I'm not there to get drunk. Now, that's a rather pedestrian example, but it's the kind of thing I'm talking about maybe in the bar environment. You know, I'm just not taking part in the assumptions and the practices that are going on around me in maybe some crazy, you know, dive bar where everybody's just trying to get drunk and get together, right? Um, in the church world, it, it really just comes down to loving my brethren as if they're my brethren, you know, and actually doing that and not walking around with a chip on my shoulder and not walking around trying to condemn them. I don't want to condemn anybody. I want to reform and I want to see people saved, you know. So I want to act like that as best as I can. And the best way that I can is simply doing good work. Again, if I'm not called to be a preacher, but rather to be the guy playing the drums, then I need to show up prepared and ready to play the drums. And I need to play them well. I need to do the job the way that it needs to be done. And I need to do it cheerfully. You know, I want to make the entire situation enjoyable and easy for everybody involved, musically and personally. You know, I'm not going to be sitting there sulking over something that I think is wrong. I'm going to, you know, gratefully, um, with humility, pursue my job. And the gratefulness is a big part of that. You know, I'm very thankful for the fact that I get to play. 
you know, God made me a musician, and I can't believe I get that gift, and I want to pursue the situations that he's led me to humbly, meekly, and with gratitude for the whole thing. And that will lead me to be grateful to be around the people that I'm around. What if, what if there is a situation where it's just something that you can't handle? What might lead you to the point of having to disengage and not do the job? In the church environment, one needs to learn to distinguish between heresy and what we call adiaphora, which is things indifferent. Um, I play, let, let me just be frank, I play in a lot of places I would never go to church because of theological differences. I wouldn't be a member of the church, but it doesn't keep me from worshiping there. Does that make sense? So, you know, if you don't baptize your children, or if you use grape juice in communion, or if you're sitting around waiting for the rapture to happen, okay, I'm not going to be a member of your church, but those aren't things that place you outside of the Christian faith and make me have to disengage from you, right? Those are just things that we disagree about, but you're still within the realm of creedal orthodoxy, and you're my brother, and I can come before the Lord side by side with you any time. So I'm not going to necessarily turn down playing for you if you know, you're going to be doing some practices or preaching some things that might trouble me. Now, there may be some practices going on, though, that I, for other reasons, don't feel like I can get behind. You know, if you want me to play at your Christian clown show, I'm not going to do it because I think that that violates the ethics of a worship service. Our beliefs may be lined up, but if you're doing something that I think is unethical, I'm not going to be there, certainly. I hate to put it this way, but also there are a lot of churches who don't handle their business very well, and they don't treat their musicians very well. And I've been guilty of kind of grumbling and complaining about that in public when I've been treated that way. But unfortunately, we sometimes get treated that way. There are places that are late in paying. There are places that have stiffed musicians. There are places that will... Um, underpay, and I don't want to be a part of that anymore. You know, I've had it done to me enough to where I want to stand against that so it doesn't happen to anybody else, especially in the church, because, you know, that, that uh, you know, it ought to be the exact opposite of that, and I will leave that rant behind. And then finally, I, I think it goes without saying that um, if I'm being asked to lead worship in a situation where I think, Heresy is being preached. Of, of course I'm not going to take part in that. And also, this is a controversial point, and I've debated it on many occasions, but I really don't want to play too much of the music being put out by heretical producers. Um, because of CCLI, because of the way the church, um, what we might call the in evangelical industrial complex functions, there are a lot of songs that are popular and being used in a lot of churches that are generating a revenue stream directly affecting the ability of heretics to spread false.
false teaching. And I think we need to leave that behind. There are plenty of great songs that we can use. Now, again, the secular world is kind of low-hanging fruit, but um, clearly there can be some times where the situations that you might find yourself in, especially as a member of a band or something like that, you know, may put you in environments such that you need to walk away from it. Um, Think about if your rock band got a gig at a strip club, right? Well, clearly you shouldn't be there. And sometimes the environment is so debauched that you really ought not to be there for your own witness. Also, you know, bar life is hard. It's really hard. And so um, it may have an effect on you. It may have an effect on your outlook on life, you know, general things like that. Or maybe you're being tempted to drink too much, you know. Um, Again, I'll have a beer. I'll have a shot of whiskey during the course of an evening, during the course of a set, you know. And um, I'll leave it at that. But what if you know, rounds of shots keep getting sent up to the band and you've had a hard day and you're tempted to just, well, I'm just going to drink it. And that can quickly pile up and become a lifestyle and you need to watch out for that. So if you're, if you're being tempted by that, you know, or if you're being tempted with the, um, let's just say the atmosphere of sexual immorality in some of the places, if you're being tempted um, just by what you're looking at, or um, what people are doing, you know, the way they're dancing, I don't know, anything like that. If it's, if it's having an effect on you, you know, then step back. It's okay. Sometimes you may need to disengage. Again, um, bad business practices can always mean that you have to get out of a certain business. If you find yourself, especially for those of you who play in original bands and are playing showcases and, and those kind of things and man, touring at a small level and things like that, you know how badly we can get ripped off. And um, you may need to dissociate yourself from that. Um, It may be that a band leader or uh, uh, a band mate is um, engaging in things business-wise that are unethical or illegal, and you need to get away from that. Also, if there's anybody having struggles in your band that will be enabled by your continuing presence there, then it's okay to withdraw. We don't want to just do that um, at the drop of a hat. These decisions have to come with much prayer and much consideration, but there are going to be some times when you have to refuse a gig because of the environment, not just for your own good, but for the good of others. And that's what I want to really stress. In situations where you don't want to be a part of the environment, the motivating factor there needs to be love and it needs to be that we want to be a consistent witness. And there are times where our Lord has told us to withdraw. Ironically, a lot of those have to do with dealing with false teaching in the church, much more so than withdrawing from the world around us. So let's keep that in mind too. We want to bear witness in both environments. Again, generally speaking in the church, If you are creedally orthodox, you're my brother, and I may differ with you on a lot of issues, but I can worship with you, and I'm going to worship with you, and I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability just to earn your trust 
because of the things I care about. Um, let me kind of come clean here, as I have in a couple of, uh, couple of other forums. One of the reasons I continue in what I call the evangelical industrial complex is that I'm here to subvert it. So, moving on to the secular world, uh, again, I'm going to try to be a witness to the light of Christ everywhere that I go, whether it's some, you know, uh, run-down honky-tonk somewhere with a country band or some wild and crazy rock and roll show with a rock band and everything in between. I'm going to show up and I'm going to play the drums and I'm going to entertain people and I'm going to do it as well as I can. And then I'm going to be friendly, cheerful, winsome, and a Christian. I want to live and love with those around me and show them what Jesus has done for me. And I want them to see the hope in me and ask me about it. And of course, in every challenge, I want to face it with prayer, with humility, and with thanksgiving, and just do my work. Now, if you're facing any of these challenges, I'd like to hear from you. If there's something I haven't addressed, I would like to hear from you too. That way we can talk about it, we can pray for one another, and we can continue to do what God has called us to do. Now, let's talk about charts. Let's talk about reading and writing music. The main reason that I can do what I do is that my teachers graciously shared their knowledge with me so that I can read and write music. I very often will have to learn 40 or 50 songs at a pop, and there's no way that I could sit there and listen to a bunch of music and play along to it by ear, and remember it all. That's just not possible. Or or let's just say I'm not willing to invest the time to make it possible because that would reduce my hourly rate to about 50 cents an hour, (laughs) right? And I have other things to do. But because I know how to read and write music, I can listen to a song once, and write it down, and carry it with me, and show up ready to play. And it has helped me enormously. And even if you don't have that, you know, that huge of an amount of songs you need to learn, we all do need to learn new songs, or new musical passages, or communicate with one another. And man, being able to read helps. Being able to write helps. So, what are some of the types of musical charts that we may be given? First of all, you may just get straight-up sheet music. Here's every measure. Here's every part. Here's what you're going to do. Do that. Sometimes you'll be given what we call a rhythm chart. It's kind of along the same format, but the chords will just be marked as changes, and um, the drum groove may not be so defined, but it'll tell you what to do for how many measures, and it'll show you the road map. There's also what we call the Nashville number system. And then finally, you may just get lyrics and chords. You know, here's the words, here's the chords over them. And then, uh, of course, the other types will be whatever kind of personal hybrid you've come up with. I have my own system that I hope to 
find a way to be able to teach you over this podcast. So what are some of the fundamentals of all these? Well, in traditional music, the, the written music is going to be divided into measures on the staff, right? Four beats to a measure in 4-4 four, four time, and uh, phrases of usually 4, 8, 12, 16 measures. In a rhythm sheet, rather than having little dots telling you everything you're going to have to do, you're just going to find slash marks four to a bar. And that just means play the groove, play your part. You know, whatever you're doing in that section of the song, do that within that measure. You're going to find repeat signs, okay? At the end of a bar, you're going to see a double bar with two dots. Or at the beginning of a phrase, you'll see a double bar with two dots in the other direction. And that those bracket in a section that you're going to repeat. You may have a first and second ending. That's kind of self-explanatory. You're going to play the first ending, repeat the section, then play the second ending instead, and move on. You might see DC Alcoda or DS Alcoda, or just DS Alfine. And those are things that mean, uh, DC is going to mean go back to the beginning of the chart and play either to the coda or wherever it tells you to stop. And DS is going to mean to go back to the sign, senyo. And that's a little funky sign that you'll see in the chart that I'm going to post. And do that either to the coda section or to the end. In the Nashville system, you're going to basically see a bunch of numbers written usually four at a time and then um, in a block. So you might see you know, five, five, four, one, and then underneath it, one, four, four, six, you know, or something like that. And that just looks crazy. It looks like a phone number. But what, what that is, is kind of a development along the lines of figured bass in Baroque music. Um, If you think of the seven degrees of a scale, then a chord built on each degree would be the one, the two, the three, the four, the five, right? Typically, in uh, the kind of music that this system was developed for, you play one chord per measure. So if you see one, four, four, five, that means a measure where the band is playing on the one chord, a measure where they're playing on the four, a measure where they're playing on the four, a measure where they're playing on the five. And that's that phrase. Now, if two or more numbers are underlined, what that's going to mean is that they're half notes. So they both occur within the same measure. So if you see maybe one and four are underlined, then five, then one, then five, then that means the band's playing the one chord on beat one, the four chord on beat three, and then moving on to separate measures for the other chords. When there is a hold, if we're all playing a whole note, They will write that in the way that you write it as an ensemble figure in sheet music, which is a diamond-shaped whole note instead of an egg-shaped whole note. And so it's very common in Nashville lingo to call it a diamond. We're going to diamond on the four. That means we're going to play the four chord of the scale as a whole note, and we're all going to stop, and you'll crash a cymbal. They'll also very often use regular repeat signs. So if you see one, four, four, five, dot, Five, five, four, one, repeat sign. 
then that means we're going to play a four-measure phrase, going to another four-measure phrase, and then we're going to repeat the whole thing, and that might be the verse or something. Now, um, even on chord charts, if you just get lyrics and chords, sometimes there'll be some uh, repeat signs, sometimes there'll be some things like that. They may even type out measures with slash marks to kind of help you um, look at it more like a rhythm chart. Or you may make your own notes telling you what the kick and the snare are going to do or something like that. And then, again, like I said, I have my own personal hybrid of all of that in which I use slash marks and repeat signs extensively, but I will write out what the drums do. And I'm going to show you an example of that. Um, I don't want to turn two or three pages of a song that I only listened to once. I want it all there on one page for me to read, yet I want to know everything that I'm supposed to do. And so what I will usually do is chart out... Um, exactly what the kick and snare pattern are in terms of uh, you know standard musical notation but I'll just do that measure as a repeat sign and then I'll put you know v8 over it which means that's the verse and I do that pattern eight times and then the next time around I'll just do slash marks because I already know what the pattern is and what I'll do is every section will typically just be one measure with repeat signs and slash marks and then what it is and how many measures that is above it, like C8. Well, that's eight bars of a chorus. And then if there are any figures and stops, then I will write those out specifically as standard notation so that there's no doubt in my mind what I'm supposed to do. That gives me a system that's quick, easy to understand, and all fits on one page on my iPad. So I'm going to include some basic examples of these different types of music in my uh, post on johnnydrums.com for this episode and I want you to take a look at those and then we'll talk more specifically about each type in future episodes and really get into the nuts and bolts of how they work and um, maybe I can find some musical examples I can post too so you can read the chart alongside the song and really um, you know try to follow along and then I would like you to start charting out music if you've never done it before so that you can get good at it. Um, an exercise that I do that helps me with my work is that I get the set lists of all the local cover bands and any song that I don't know, I'm making charts for them. Okay, number one, because that helps me get fast at it. Again, as I said in the introduction to this, I only listen to songs once. You know, and I write them down. And I want to be really quick at that so I don't have to hit the pause button or anything like that. If the song's four minutes long, I want it to take me four minutes to chart it out so I can move on to the next one. Um, but also, then I have a library, you know, in my iPad in the wonderful Fourscore app. I've got probably 1,500 charts now. And they're divided into worship songs and cover songs and categories and things like that so that you know if some band I've never played with before calls and needs a drummer at the last minute I'm not going to have to sit there and learn a bunch of songs the day before I'm going to already have most of them and I just drag them into a set list and show up and do my job so it really helps me a lot and it'll help you a lot um, again if we think of music as a language you want to be literate in your language right so check that out and see how it helps you
Okay, so let's land the plane. Um, it's been a good episode. I'm sorry if I'm a little uh, distracted. Again, I'm kind of winging this because of uh, having to pull it together on short notice. But I thank you so much for listening. And I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear more about what you would like from this podcast. Um, if you've got any topic suggestions, send them to me. Again, you can reach me, johnny at johnnydrums.com. You can visit johnnydrums.com to get a hold of me. And um, look me up on the social medias and all that jazz. And um, remember that I'm available for lessons over Skype. I'm really set up to do that well here at the studio. And I always offer a free lesson to interested students. But again, mainly, I would just like to hear from you. I know that you know uh, the podcast is growing. I'm watching the numbers. And I thank you so much for that. But, you know, I want to hear from you so I know you're out there. I don't want you to just be numbers on a graph, right? Um, also, if you could visit iTunes and write me a review and, you know, give me the number of stars you feel is appropriate, that kind of helps me move up in the listings and people can see, you know, people can find out about this podcast and hopefully subscribe. Want to give some shout outs? My podcast shout out this episode is Reconstructionist Radio. Um, Jason and all the different hosts um, under that umbrella of the master feed really bless me and um, challenge me and make me more of a kingdom driven Christian. And I really enjoy the things that they put out. Um, Book wise, my good friend Kemper Crab has a book out called Liberation Front. You can find it in all the usual kind of outlets, um, and you can find it at his website, KemperCrab.net. But um, that book will change your Christian life, so I strongly urge you to read it. Finally, my friends, let's close together in a word of prayer. Almighty God, to whom and for whom belong all things, Inspire us to work as we ought, and to witness as we ought, that we may shine your light in the world and order it to your glory, in humility and all submissiveness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.